Hi everybody and welcome to the special instalment of 42 and a Doomsday Weapon podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Rob. And I'm also Rob. And tonight we're all going to squee for Pertwee. I cross the void beyond the mine. The empty space that circles time. I see where others tumble blind. To seek a truth they never find. Eternal wisdom is my guide. And tonight, folks, we're going to be talking about the John Pertwee era. But before we do that, uh, our special guest, Rob, uh, we're going to have a little chat about uh, to Rob about uh, what Rob does with regards to Doctor Who. So, hello, Rob, and welcome to the podcast. Ah, thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. It's awesome. Now, Rob, um, just looking at uh, various websites over the last couple of weeks, you've been involved in something called the Science of Doctor Who, uh, traveling around Australia. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. It's um, we're really excited uh, in association with RIOs, which is a science-based institution in Australia, and with the BBC. We're doing a national tour of a show called The Science of Doctor Who, where basically myself and three scientists uh, get up on stage and I bring up uh, sort of like the theories explored in Doctor Who and the scientists are there to pretty much see whether it's plausible or not. So we talk about regeneration, about uh, parallel dimensions, time travel, extra dimensions, all that type of stuff, uh, life on other planets, and the, the, the fully-fledged scientists are there to talk about whether it's um, actually possible or not. The show has provided a sufficient uh, launching pad for that sort of discussion, have you found? It's, it's been really interesting to look, uh, go back and do research, uh, just watch old classic stories and see how much uh, scientific theories or scientific um, uh, uh, you know, new thoughts at that time uh, they put into the classic series and explored a little bit now in the modern series. But especially in that classic era, they tried to explore new theories that were coming out or possibilities within the science community and put it in the forefront of Doctor Who. So it's been great to look back at uh, with the scientists from that, you know, from an actual intelligent scientific point of view and them turning to me going, is this explored in Doctor Who? And I'm, I get to be the expert on who. That's all I'm an expert in when it comes to science. Uh, to go, well, actually, it refers to this episode here and that relates back to this doctor and this doctor. So I get a little chuffed when the scientists turn to me and ask me questions about Doctor Who. Can you show clips? Yes, yeah, well, we've got official endorsement to show clips. We pretty much show clips from all the Doctors, which will be awesome. Um, Do you have input into those clips? Yes, yeah, very much so. This is a show that I've sort of like co-wrote and structured with the guys from RAOs. The the BBC have confirmed it all and they're very excited by it. And we pretty much go, is it okay if we use these clips? And they go, yeah, that's sure, that's fine. Can I put a request in for a clip? Which clip would you like to see? Perry, Planet of Fire, <laughs> Born in Sea, what's the, uh, what's Flotation. The, what's the uh, scientific... Oh, the Flotation. Flotation devices? And we don't want to uh, work on sort of like Turlo's uh, short shorts and that. And see <laughs> no. Whether he actually has his manhood intact, <laughs> intact by the end of that? No, no, not at all. Okay. And uh, what is R.A. Oz's remit? What, what's their interest in all this? What do they, uh, they try to impart to the community? Um, well, I've been working with them for the last couple of years, and what they're about is taking uh, science to, to country uh, centres that don't normally get sort of like um, guest lecturers who are top of their field in science. I started working with them with a show called Mind Matters, where myself and a neuroscientist toured around, and I did comedy at the start, and he got up and did an hour lecture about advancements with neuroscience and stuff like that. And while I was there, we were discussing with the organisers from RIOs about... Uh, what possibilities we have and because I'm a Doctor Who fan and the woman organising it was a Doctor Who fan and a lot of people think I look like David Tennant she said you know what we should do is create a show about 
you know, the scientific theories explored in Doctor Who, and that springboarded from there. We got interest from the BBC, and now this show is coming about this year, which is really exciting. And the um, what, what sort of reception are you getting at the uh, at the audiences that are attending? Because I mean, you're out in the country, I suppose, and you know, a lot of people don't have access to the sort of the, the scientific, you know, lectures and talks and things like that that you would get in a, in a, in a metropolitan city. It's 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 really it's it's a really strong, confident, and positive vibe that we're getting because it's looking at who in a different way, and especially with the stuff that's been happening over the last you know uh, year with the fiftieth anniversary with Brian Cox doing his uh, Science of Doctor Who special and the BBC America have done their television specials about it as well. There's a, a real keen interest to explore that science side of Doctor Who, especially because a lot of people look more upon Doctor Who as science, uh, also like you know science fantasy or just pure fantasy. Uh, Terry Pratchett has come out and said that you know Doc- Doctor Who isn't science fiction; it is fantasy. Um, so. To be able to explore that and people are interested who are not necessarily huge Doctor Who fans, but they love science. They like to see how pop culture and advancements in science sort of like mash up together. Excellent, excellent. And uh, where have you been so far? Uh, We've done the show before uh, at the Adelaide Fringe and we've also done it through the CSIRO in uh, Canberra. But this is our first official uh, national tour with the BBC. So we're starting in Perth and then we go to Brisbane, Adelaide, Sydney and we finish up uh, at the end of June in Melbourne, and so far in terms of demographics of people attending, are you getting a lot of a lot of school aged kids? I suppose, or is it is it an older audience? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a family friendly audience. So it's like twelve plus is on the uh, is on the the information of the show. But we get a great range of uh, of high school kids, of university students, of parents bringing their kids who are, who you know getting into Doctor Who, or old school Doctor Who fans who now have kids bringing them along. That's the great thing about Doctor Who. You get a wide range of audience members. You don't just get a specific demographic, especially if you broaden it out to all of Doctor Who. You can get classic fans and, and um, modern fans who are a lot younger as well. And is there an opportunity for uh, audience you know, interaction or participation or questions from the floor? Very much so. We've got a, a part of the show where audiences get to... Uh, figure out whether a, a companion in a certain moment runs away or fights, you know, fight or flight. There's moments where we actually put the, you know, the eternal question of Doctor Who, which monster is the most dangerous, which monster is the most deadly, and the audience get to decide. So there's a lot of great opportunities for the audience to be involved. And the, uh, the three scientists that you've got with you, um, how have they found the experience so far? They love it because part of, you know, being a scientist and part of their, you know, their mantra is to do as much as they can to connect with communities and you know spread their message onto other people. And they're all huge Doctor Who fans. That's the most important thing when we're looking for scientists to be involved in this. They wanted to be the top of their field, but also had to be passionate about Doctor Who. So we've had uh, research, which I'm doing in inverted commas again, where we've come around and had movie marathons at my place and. That's the that's the, been the highlight of, of doing this show is me there with some of the most intelligent people I've ever met and they're all asking me questions about Doctor Who going, now, okay, we're watching this story. How does this connect with, with the time war and all this here? And, and they're going, I, I don't have to ask any questions at all about science because they're all asking me questions. So I get very chuffed about that. Now, you mentioned that uh, there's an Australia-wide tour about to you know, be embarked upon. Where can people find out more about how to obtain tickets and where it's coming to the, you know, their region best place to go is the rioz website which is rioz.com and if you do forward slash doctor who that'll take you straight to the link or all the information is on my website robloyd.com.au links are on the front page right there also rob you uh toured a one-man show of doctor who 
and its impact on your life uh, to Edinburgh and Australia and uh, New Zealand. New Zealand, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I couldn't remember the country. Can you talk about that as well? <laughs> a lot of people forget about New Zealand. Oh, it's especially, true, bro. Especially if they're successful, we forget that they're from New Zealand. We claim them as our own. Thank nice. you, Lord, for being another Australian who won uh, Grammys for us. My show, Who Me, which is uh, my second solo show. Um, my solo shows tend to have a theme of uh, dealing with my obsession. So my first solo show was about Sherlock Holmes. And my second show, uh, Who Me, was about my obsession with Doctor Who. And so I explore whether my obsession with Doctor Who is a good thing or a bad thing, a good influence and a bad influence over my life. And so I put Doctor Who on trial in my mind to see whether he has you know, been a source of uh, positive uh, influence or negative influence. And so I've been doing that show for over two years now, toured it all around Australia. Last year I took six months off uh, my regular work to do a national tour. So I took it up to places I'd never been before, like Darwin, took it over to New Zealand for the Auckland Comedy Festival, and finally got to do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And how was that? That was amazing, to be over there during the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, during the time when Peter Capaldi was announced. Mm. So I actually got to watch it live at an appropriate time like over there it was like 7 in the evening as opposed to waking up at 3 or 4 in yeah, the evening 4 o'clock in the morning yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just fantastic and plus he was Scottish so I was in Edinburgh and so you know it was happy Peter Capaldi month and uh, you know and people were genuinely out there talking about who and talking about Capaldi and there was this great excitement for the show because they knew it was the 50th anniversary and people were excited about this very you know very well regarded actor especially in the UK um, uh, taking over the role it was kind of like that same buzz when Eccleston was announced people going oh okay this is serious now mm-hmm. this is, we've got someone who's you know, got some you know, weight behind them uh, it was great and so to do the show in the UK and to see that this show connects with people all over the world is, was a lot of fun I just finished doing it again in Perth at the uh, Perth World Fringe Festival so I don't think this show is going to go away very soon so that's still a part of me Sequel, sequel. Well, I don't want to do the Toby Haydock thing and do this. You know, the second Moth State, my Doctor Who scarf. Yeah. You know, dealing with his stepson and stuff like that. Um, I kind of want to move on to my other obsessions. So, Who Me's always going to be there, but maybe explore my obsession with you know Quantum Leap or or the '90s uh, Flash TV series. Everybody remember that? Yeah, I do. Oh, yeah. Yes. Jonathan John Wesley shit. Yes, that's oh, right. What an actor. My brother's got oh, the DVD set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's yeah. not something your brother should actually admit. <laughs> no. <laughs> and we've just outed him. That's right one of the better. On that's one of the better entries in his DVD collection as well. There's probably about three good uh, uh, telefantasy series in the '90s, and Fla- and the Flash was not one of them. I think so. No, it no. wasn't. There's a reason why it only lasted one season. Ooh, mm. Probably lucky to limp to that. Yeah. And again, what's the reception reception that you've had uh, in your in your touring with regard? I mean, you know, there's a fertile vein, I suppose, that you can mine for in terms of comedy value for Doctor Who and its impact on yourself. Yeah, I kind of want to explore the the fact that. I didn't want to do a show solely based on who humor because you know, if the early DVD releases of the classic Doctor Who stories show that trying to do who related comedy doesn't really work so like doing a day in the life of Sutek or stuff like that doesn't really work that well so I kind of wanted to connect it to my story and how who impacted on my life and that seems to have gone down really well and people who aren't really huge Doctor Who fans came along as well because everyone has an obsession whether it's a, a rock band or a sports team or you can everyone has that moment where they go a little bit too far with how much they love something and everyone has a guilty secret so some of my favourite audiences are like the spouse is a huge Doctor Who fan and they bring the, the, their better half along and so both of them are there going they never understood Doctor Who but now they understand my point of view and it works either way like we have classic fans who are you know 
classic male fans bringing their wives along or we have modern uh, wives bringing their their husbands along and it's that whole sharing the experience so people who have no experience with the people who adore the show so I, I, that's that's been a great best response and getting a wide range of fans just like the science of Doctor Who one of my favorite experiences we had one night a group of women in their late 40s come along and and I said hello ladies and they said oh this is a great show yeah our husbands are coming along next week and they're going to bring the kids yeah it's fine and they said they met at the Doctor Who club and then they got married and then they had kids and now their kids are Doctor Who fans so it's like carrying on that tradition that's and that's the the joy about a show that's gone 50 years you've got you know three or four generations of fans oh you wouldn't be touring with it at the moment of course with um with the, the science of Doctor Who so yeah we did that did our last run in Perth mm-hmm. uh, about three weeks ago and so it's going to be on hold or hiatus oh sorry sorry oh. sorry for saying the H word that word Now that we've sort of touched on your obsession with the show, tell us about your um, your love of the show. I'm glad I'm being brought in for Pertwee because uh, I got into Doctor Who quite late. I'm not I'm not like uh, the modern or the classic fans who got into it behind the sofa when they were kids. It was always on the ABC when I was growing up, but I always missed it. I was around the afternoon show time. There was Monkey Magic and Inspector Gadget and Cities of Gold, all that stuff and the goodies. And I watched all of that with a passion, but Doctor Who kind of slipped me by. And it wasn't until 1996, my first year of uni, um, I was, you know, while other people went out drinking and partying, exploring their sexuality as you do at uni, no, 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 I wanted to explore a cult series from the 60s, 70s and 80s called Doctor Who. Because one of my friends there was a huge Who fan, and he just sat down and told me the entire history of Doctor Who. And this was 96, so it was a big year. It was the year the telly movie came out, and it was also the year uh, John Pertwee passed away. And so when I found out Pertwee passed away, I watched all the news articles about him and there was little clips of him on Parkinson and he was just this charismatic, uh, funny guy and the clips that I saw of his Who were, looked very interesting. So from that moment on, I started to you know try and find out as much as I can about the Pertmeister and all other Who's as well. But that's when I fell in love with Pertwee and he became my favourite Doctor. What about you, uh, Rob, on the other line? What was your initial uh, viewings and experiences of uh, seeing uh, the third Doctor in action? I have said in the past that my very first experience of Doctor Who was a Pertwee uh, era experience where I was watching um, The Time Warrior. And it's the it's the part where Lynx's uh, helmet comes off, and um, you see old Potato Head just uh, glaring glaring at someone. I think he's glaring at me. I obviously thought he was glaring at me because I immediately bolted from the house and and ran outside. And I, I must now I'm thinking that I saw this in color, and I'm thinking that my parents must have bought a color tele, telly in 1975. So I, I I think it was then. But it's you know given the you know the uh, the never ending uh, repeats on on the ABC. It could have, could have easily has happened, you know, a couple of years later. But I've decided that I saw it in '75 and it was screened in Australia, and that's my first memory. And of course, because uh, the ABC had Doctor Who on high rotation throughout the year, later on I, I came to the very firm belief that 
the doctor, the John Pertwee doctor regenerated into the Tom Baker doctor and then decided to regenerate back into the John Pertwee doctor. <laughs> and I was, I was of the opinion when I was in uh, late primary school that that was a fact, but as it turns out that that was not the case. So yeah, that was my first experience with, with John Pertwee. What a great start for the, you know, to have your first experience with John Pertwee here is like that iconic moment when you see the Centauran for the first time. It's such a good story too. Mm. I love the Time Warrior. It, it's, it, is, it is a bit underrated. I love, the, I love, I love how John Pertwee runs. Because he, oh, yeah. he doesn't run, he scurries. And I was looking, because his back is obviously shot, and even I was looking in Terror of the Autons, because I, I watched it last night, and even then running around, he just he has this very straight back run. He's like, um, there's a famous Olympic 400 meter runner who ran straight back. I can't remember his name, but yeah. <laughs> that's John Pertwee, obviously in a course that even in 1971. Don't look that up. Don't look that up. Yeah, what about you, Mark? My initial uh, memories of John Pertwee were actually watching Wurzel Gummidge. Loved that show. As a, as a child but when we moved over here um, I think in the early 80s I think the ABC only had uh, four or five colour Pertwee episodes or stories to show so they used to put those on uh, on regular repeat and it wasn't until the uh, 86 massive Pertwee run where a lot of the uh, some of the Pertwee stories actually got their debut over here for example The Demons and, and Inferno so uh, I just remember watching all those sort of mythical stories used to read in the back of the um, either the Peter Haining celebration book or the, even the program guide which giving you a synopsis and you actually could see them I remember taping them and uh, doing lots of copies and sending them back to the UK and trading them for season 24 which I think they got a better deal uh, <laughs> than the do, do you think? <laughs> I, I can guarantee it Was there anything about Pertwee that, that struck, you, struck you at that time? When you were younger? It was different to the others that I'd seen because I'd obviously been grown up mainly with Tom Baker and Davison and a little bit of Colin Baker but he was just so serious and so definite about uh, how to do things. It was quite an interesting portrayal because I remember um, sort of in the in the late 80s watching some more stories. I think I was watching a bit of season 8 and I remember saying to somebody, I, I don't like Pooh, he's a bit of a, you know, he's not very nice. And I think... Um, you know, in the early nineties, there was a bit of revisitation over his era. I remember an article in DWB. It's a revisionist examination. We all love Paul Cornell, but that's a little bit of Paul Cornell uh, bigging up his own reputation. I mean, it was very nice of him to write an article in uh, in DWB, which got everyone talking not only about his views but also about Paul Cornell. And <laughs> he's a lovely fellow, I'm sure. Been to our shores, but uh, you know. Uh, you, you wouldn't be writing an article like that simply just to tear someone down or a story down. You'd be writing an article like that to get your name out there. And, you know, at the start of his writing career, that didn't hurt. My opinion of his era has really done a 360. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. There's been a couple of dips, which we'll talk about later. But on the whole, um, I think it's a really good, solid, consistent five-year run. And, and Rob, you, as you said before, you, you came across John Pertwee in 1996, well, well past. Well past the date. And, like, my first ever John Pertwee story was... Spearhead. So Spearhead from Space, his mm. first story. And, you know, that first story written by Holmes and he was charming and confident and sassy and a little bit flirty with Liz Shaw and she flirted back and they're on the same level and they played and toyed with the Brigadier. It was awesome. They're going, well, because at this point, this was the staunch, you know, the asexual doctor. Um, and, you know, just just before, you know, this is when the outrage of McGann macking out with, um, Grace, Holloway. with Grace Holloway. Um, and so just go back and see a classic era episode and to see John Pertwee's Doctor come out and be so charming and a little bit flirty and just so, you know, so charismatic. It was wonderful to see. And so it just fueled me to go out and watch his, 
many as I could. In season seven, he's got a twinkle, and that and that's and that's that's Pertwee's charisma from being yeah. you know, a, a, a consummate stage performer and his work on radio and mm. stuff like that. He's you know he was a raconteur. He mm. loved telling stories and expanding what he you know t- taking reality and twisting it a little bit and mm. turning it into his own uh, little little uh, adventure stories. But he brought that to his doctor and. It's through the course of playing the Doctor, he brought the more serious roles out, and then near the end of his tenure, he wanted to bring the comedy back. But there was always that underwriting charisma and charm and uh, and focus, which I really loved. So that that's that's what really attracts me to the Doctor is that just you know that effect, you know, no no effort, just to be that charismatic and that nice and that uh, that that charming. Was, is, is still why he's my favourite Doctor. You get the impression, I, I listened to an interview, uh, sorry, I listened to a, an, a, an, an hour with John Pertwee, which is a recording of a sort of a, uh, you know, a sort of a sit down. He would, he would have sit, he would, you know, speak for an hour to the audience and talk about his life. And um, when he was cast in the role or when he, you know, approached the, the show through his agent, they, you know, they sort of said, well, we want John Pertwee to play the role. And he said, well, I've never played John Pertwee. I don't know who John Pertwee is. And you get, I mean, it, obviously he, he said himself that he'd, you know, he'd started off uh, playing straight roles in, in, in sort of, you know, quota movies, uh, uh, sorry, for, for British uh, filmmaking. And then he sort of got into the comedy comedy angle through through radio, through Navy Like, et cetera, et cetera, and some of the carry-on films. So for him to come and, you know, go against the sort of the stereotype to play just the straight man or the straight role, I, I get the impression that he was playing himself more more or less, you know, the charis- as you said, charismatic, but sort of a more serious individual. I never see John Pertwee as one of the finest actors mm. who's played the role. It's clearly, he's a very limited actor. He's very much playing the role within his own range. But what he explores within that is fascinating like especially like his final story you know um uh, the spiders uh planet of the spiders is great there's his final moments especially when he's under the control of the great one there's some yeah. beautiful stuff he's got to work with the green screen at the back he's got a voiceover he's got but the emotion he gets out still you know makes me well up sure you have to get through episode two which is just you know 25 minute chase scene but you got to get to episodes and you got to go through you know metabilius three the planet of the bad actors mm-hmm. but then you get to that amazing moment of just Pertwee putting all the stops it's like Mark Hamill Mark Hamill is not a good actor but in the original Star Wars trilogy he is pushed within an inch of his acting life and that's what I see as John Pertwee his five years of Doctor Who within his limited range he pushed himself so far and he did some amazing work in there so he's no Patrick Troughton who is just the greatest actor ever to play the Doctor and he doesn't have you know that type of range that David Tennant who can cry at the drop of a a hat and people go oh it's just so amazing well yeah it just you, he pinches his cheeks and he cries <laughs> but to have an actor of such a limited range explore as much as he could within that was really great to see over that five year era now the casting of a comedian I mean was that a bit of a, a risk for the BBC at that time because the show was in a in a bit of a downward spiral in 69 and it was they I, I believe that they cast Pertwee before that they, before they recommissioned the show. Well, originally they were going to cast Ron Moody, who was another comedian. He was uh, famous for playing Fagin and Oliver. So initially he was asked to. Uh, he actually was offered the role and he said no. He's, he turned it down twice. He turned it down twice when Tom Baker left as well. So it was a Peter Bryant was the producer then. He they had an idea of a Derek Sherman. Derek Sherman. So it was a singer, a, a singing and dancing man. So um, yes, they went. They went for John Pertwee, who then said, no, "I'm not playing it like that. I'll do it straight." Thank you. Well, that's strange. That's strange because wasn't Sherwin after a more Quatermass style uh, approach anyway to, to season seven, and then you get a singing and dancing man. Season six was very 
like if you look at there's so many problems with season six you know so many rewrites so many scripts dropped out you know you're looking at you know uh, the prison in space was meant to be done, but that was rejected. And so Robert Holmes had to come in and do the space pirates, you know, mm. in, in like with no time whatsoever. And then ten episodes was there meant to be two stories that was dropped. And so then Terence Dix and Malcolm Holt had to write, okay, you've got to do a finale over ten episodes. Go boys! So there was a lot of problems within you know the production company at the time, and so they needed something to change it up. And they were given one last go. The BBC said, look, we'll give you one season, we'll give it one with a new Doctor, but if it doesn't work. Mm. And so Sherwood went, well, let's mix it up, let's drop the kiddie stuff, let's go Quatermass, let's go adult, let's get a, not a companion, let's get, you know, someone who's just as intelligent, let's make it, you know, and cut the budget because they didn't have any money, so they had to just set it all on Earth. And to go for that whole different approach, but find an actor who was popular as well. That's the thing, he was a song and dance man, but he was very popular. He was one of the big stars in the 60s at the time. So to bring that big name in to the show, which was struggling, I think was a was a sensible move, despite the fact whether he was a comedian or, or anything like that. He was someone popular, and that would help boost people going, oh, okay, we know John Pert, we've listened to The Navy Life, we've seen his films, and this is, you know, this is something new and exciting. It, it's interesting that... Um even if the show was in a bit of a was in a da- you know the bottom in a dip <laughs> that uh, at that time that Pertwee would agree to, to well you know he would approach the BBC about how about taking me on and and he would accept the role I mean you know a man who was uh, as popular as, as as you say he was just interesting that he would take the role on even though the show was seen to be stagnating or on its way out it was an opportunity for him to do serious acting and this was the best vehicle for him to do that would season seven be as well remembered or even Doctor Who would have been re- uh, as well remembered if um, the show was cancelled at the end of season 7 I think it would just be re- fondly regarded like something like The Avengers a lot of people go oh you know the show wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for you know Hartnell or the show wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for that first regeneration with Pat Troughton but people forget the show would have been cancelled again if Pertwee hadn't picked it up and then mm. it not only did it succeed but it went from strength to strength and that's why the 70s is, you know, when it, when it came to the end of Pertwee's era, people, it was the most popular show. He was the most popular actor to play the Doctor. They're going, there's no one, no one could replace John Pertwee. And you know, look at, the, I'm yeah. saying that now in, you know, 2014, and it sounds ridiculous, but at that time, back in 1973, people were going, this show cannot survive without this man who's been with it for so long. Um and you know, you know, you know, with uh, with Barry Letts and Terence Strix, Dix helping out behind the scenes as well. But think of a time when you go, you know, this show couldn't survive without John Pertwee. And it's a shame that through the course of decades that pass, he's kind of he has kind of been seen in the background and been overshadowed by the likes of Tom Baker, and especially with the modern series, you know, uh, David Tennant's taken such a big. Uh, chunk of the attention and Matt Smith has been very popular and he's brought more attention to to Patrick Troughton so there's been that third Doctor era has been kind of missed over the last couple of years and not really seen as a significant part but it was a hugely important part of Who history. Well you're right I mean if you think about it the, the success of the show in the 70s has set it up for the, for the last 30 or 40 years yeah, I think without, without that success I mean, and that's all down to Pertwee really isn't it when you think about it Exactly. Because as you say, I mean, they had massive ratings. I mean, they built from season seven, and it just they changed the direction of the show slightly, and it became more populist, and it just took took off. And he was in um, Pertwee, was, Pertwee was in the rare position of handing off a very very popular show to Tom Baker, and again he took and the new production team took it and ran with it. It's it's a credit to the to 
especially because Barry Letts came in and Sherwin, like Sherwin set up season seven and he pretty much had to leave as soon as he cast Pertwee because he was then, the BBC shuffled him off to work on another show. And so, you know, Pertwee only took the role really because of, you know, he trusted Derek Sherwood and he said, well, if you're going to be there with me, I'll be there with you. And then Derek Sherwood has often talked about the fact here, he, he always remembers that awkward conversation where he said, by the way, Adrian, uh, I'm out of here. Uh, here's a... Uh, Barry and Terence they'll be taking over and so Barry and Terence had to just carry on with whatever that was given because they'd already figured out the four stories and they just had to go through the motions and so then you see that massive change from season 7 to 8 to go Barry and Terence went okay let's do the show we want to do now as opposed to the show that um, you know uh, Sherwood wanted to do so what do you both think about season seven? Everybody thinks season seven's fantastic. Yeah, season seven's yeah. my favourite, easily. Even in Ambassadors of Death, I mean, it's sort of seen as, a, I suppose, a, the the sticking point. But despite the amount of rewrites that thing had, because really it was credited to David Whittaker, but Malcolm Hulk had a, a hand in writing that, or rewriting that, I should say. I think it's, uh, I think it's fan- a fantastic series. I mean, I with the special edition on, uh, of Inferno came out, I watched all seven episodes in one go. Because it was just that enthralling, it was just that well done, it was just absolutely brilliant. Um, everybody, I don't think, has a, a bad word to say against uh, season seven. Yeah, I mean, some of the Solarians does sort of dip a bit in the middle, but I think it's one of the best. I love se- season seven. I, I mean, I, I don't know that I saw any of it until probably the eighties or the nineties on, on on VHS. I mean, the, the themes that you, you see in that, you know, a bit of political conspiracy, um, the sort of the Quatermass feel, um, you know. An ancient evil coming, coming, uh, re-emerging in, in in modern times, or a danger from outer space. I mean, that's the sort of thing that I, I really like. Um, uh, and you know, Pertwee's performance is great. Uh, his relationship with the brigadier. I mean, that, that seminal moment where you know the brigadier blows up the Silurian caves, and uh, the, the you know Pertwee plays the doctor as as having is not being uh as having a, a broader view of the universe and the fact that the brigadier appears to have committed some sort of genocide just absolutely disgusts him and and you, you can see that the, the the production team is treating the audience like adults where you you've moved away from I mean I, I love the Troughton era but I mean you can see that that's more aimed at the the sort of the kids, kids. yeah whereas season 7 is taking on the sort of the zeitgeist of the times I mean you, you're looking at more you know para, paranoia thrillers I mean, the idea that the, the, the Silurians, for instance, are happy to you know wipe out humanity with a with a you know a, a bacteria or a virus, um, it just it just grips you and uh, and uh, yeah, I I find that that season seven is probably the best season of the Pertwee run. Certainly more consistent. It just looks great. Uh, unit is more of a professional outfit rather than the sort of the, the unit family. Um, <laughs> Uh, and you know, you, I love the more avuncular uh, brigadier later on. I mean, as you, uh, in Planet of the Spiders, where him and the Doctor go to a to a, go to the theater, go, go to, to the take, theater together, go to taking uh, some uh, vaudevillian enjoyment, some belly exactly. dancing action. Uh, and even in uh, in ter- uh, was it terror? Uh, sorry, the de- the demons. I watched the demons yesterday, and, and they're talking about the brigadier. You know, he's all dressed up. He's going off to some sort of party or soiree. And then they try and raise the brigadier, and they and the person on the other end of the phone basically says he's gone off. You know, he's, he's vanished into the night. <laughs> and then the next morning, the next time you see the brigadier, he's he's taking a phone call in bed. And I was just sitting there when I was watching this yesterday, I was thinking the cameraman's going to pan back, and there's just going to be this blonde head lying next to him. <laughs> Two blonde heads, I remember. But you wouldn't have seen that in season seven. It just it's it's all very straight down the line. And the, the cliffhangers are really wonderful. I remember the the, the one ambassadors of of death, where the you know Pertwee turns to the camera and shouts, you know, we have to cut cut our way in. It's just, just uh, I love it. I love it. And it's got it's it's kind of like especially with season seven, it's before 
the star and the other actors in it sort of like took too much control over. It's kind of like with Tom Baker's early era when he didn't start becoming, you know, the nerd diva in the lead role. So you look at later on in in, uh, Tom Baker's era, he's starting demand ridiculous thing he's difficult to work with he knew his role and so he was making his own demands and John Pertwee in many ways wasn't to that extreme but he in the end he started to you know get what he wanted in the show more more of his vehicles more of his you know the stuff that he loved doing but in that first season he's very much hired as an actor and he's still he's doing it as the role so towing the line I think it is before he gets too carried away and gets to the ridiculousness of later on where he dresses up as a cleaning lady or a very convincing Welsh accent as a milkman. So, yes, very the poor boy looked very sick. He did. Something he and I'd boy also it was season seven. I mean, the, the last three stories that were seven parters, as opposed to what happened in later series where they had six parters. Why did the seven episode stories work a lot better than the six parters that came later on? They do stretch a bit. I mean, there are moments in all three of them where they're going. They need something to happen, and then it takes a little bit longer. But then, bang! They introduce the virus, or bang! They introduce uh, the alternate universe is the B plot to keep. Uh, yeah. pushing it along isn't it and that's inspired in Inferno I think that's the best and that what yeah. makes the story so unique is that they do you know go into that parallel dimension that was apparently very much a late inclusion into it mm. um, and that just springboarded the story into something special you know drilling for you know looking at the prime wards whatever but to go and see Liz Benton and, uh, and Brigadier in their alternate versions is a fantastic sci-fi you know trope that had never been explored in Who before and wasn't really explored again until, you know, uh, uh, Tenant's era, when they put Zeppelins in the sky. When you need to do a parallel dimension, put a Zeppelin in the sky. That's what, yeah. That's it's mm. always there. It's always there. Mm. That's, and it's almost the lazy option sometimes when you think about it. Because it's, <laughs> yeah. It could have been worse. It could have had people with uh, alternate beards like in Star Trek <laughs> or South Park. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna put the evil beard on. So Barry Letts comes along uh, sort of later in, the, late in the day with Terence Dix and the show changes around a little bit, doesn't it? They do. Well, that was Barry Letts's decision to... Barry and Terry's decision to kind of go, well, we've introduced this companion who talks on the same level and but nobody understands what they're saying. And so, well, we need to have someone... If we hear this phrase again, I'm going to punch someone in the face. Connect with the audience. Um, and so we need something that you know can speak for what the audience want to say, as opposed to you know giving them benefit of the doubt, and they'll pick it up as they go along. So, um, so bringing in Joe, and 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 it was Barry and Terence's idea to really bring in the the supporting cast a lot more, which has made it more of a, a format. Yeah, yeah, more it's and more homely, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what's been incorporated a lot more with the modern series is that it's not just the Doctor and the companion traveling; it's the Doctor, the companion, and the support group around. So you look at when Eccleston came back as the Doctor; he had Rose, but also Rose had you know Jackie and Mickey and the dad as well. So there's all this support network, and they kept that family going in the modern series as well especially you know even now with you know the ponds there's rory and there's bringing in rory's dad as well they always have that family background which comes directly mm. from the pertwee era and that format of having that stability on earth and have a support crew around them and i know i'm going to risk a punch in the face but it's it's that ability to connect with the audience 
through a more you know, uh, thank you very much through a, you know the structure that they built around uh, the doctor that enabled i suppose well in my opinion anyway enabled the show's popularity to rise and rise because you, you, you in a sense you knew what you were getting every saturday tea time when you, you sat down to watch it and there were individuals within it who you could identify with, uh, which which made it you know made it I suppose it made it a bit more popular. It made it safer sometimes, but it, it certainly made it more popular. I adore uh, Liz Shaw is one is my one of my favourite companions, and I was really annoyed with with uh, the inclusion of Joe Grant. But if you look at her three year tenure on Doctor Who, she actually has a really good character arc. Mm. Not many people talk about it. People always go look at you know they go to Sarah Jane Smith. Um, and because Liz Shaw was an, uh, oh, sorry, um, Liz Sladen was an amazing actress, but Sarah Jane kind of deteriorated as a character. She started out so strong in Time Warrior, but then you know just became the screamy kind of girl. And at the end of their era, it was a really nice downbeat farewell. But if you look at Joe's era, she starts really young, really naive. But as she evolves over her three years, and by her final story, Green Death, she is not the same character as she was she has those ditzier moments but she's really grown up yes. and you've, and they play that really well especially mm. in Green Death when John just wants to go off and travel and that's the thing because Joe got there when he's exiled on Earth and so that whole thing of you know that new era where everyone goes oh who wouldn't want to go with a mysterious stranger and travel all through time and space no she first meets the Doctor he's just this old charismatic scientist guy there's no even thought of traveling through time and space the first couple of adventures they're just on earth and so joe never really got into that and when she does travel with the doctor in season uh in the the fourth season they go to you know know, the carnival of monsters the frontier in space the planet of the daleks all that stuff at the end of that story she's been to all these fascinating places he goes where do you want to go now anywhere in the world she goes i just want to go home and she just wants to go home and she never really got caught up in that whole anywhere in time and space. And she's evolved and interested in important issues like you know politics and the environment. She's one of the few characters as a companion who's actually been allowed to evolve. And no one talks about it. Everyone talks about Ace or people talk about um, Sarah Jane, but no one talks about Joe's evolution as a character. And it's a really quite good story for an annoying character and even the third doctor even though he gets his uh, exile rescinded he still always comes back to home i.e the unit family as mm. opposed to tom baker who just does robot and then <laughs> gets the hell out of there you don't see him for quite a while so i think it's just that theme of um familiarity it works quite well now we've just touched on the character of the third doctor what in my sort of uh, mini marathon that i had over the last week of watching the pertwee stories uh, he comes the third doctor comes across and cover your ears delicate listeners as a bit of a prick <laughs> <laughs> to be honest because he's constantly shouting at people and shouting down to people and it seems that he can think he thinks that he can get away with it by smiling at the end of his tirades but what, how, how come Pertwee gets away with that where Colin Baker never could I kind of forgive him because it is that whole thing of I think it did a bit too much as a fan that's sort of like okay in that first season he's exiled to earth and he's a little bit childish about you know sort of like you know, an annoyed child but then the reality sets in about you know season two he go no I'm here now I'm stuck here now and he gets frustrated by mm, the bureaucracy and yeah, he's affected by you know the brigadier blowing up the Silurians and the bureaucracy brought in by Chin and and all those you know those you know no you know the hollow men of the government coming in you know the men with no name and suits just putting in all these laws and bureaucracy that ties him down because everyone says that Pertwee is of the establishment 
They go, oh, he's the establishment man. You know, he's always out drinking with, you know, these, you know... Tubby in the club. Tubby in the club. And mm-hmm. he always mentions his famous, you know, friends like Napoleon and all that type of stuff. But I always see Pertwee as he's the man within society, within the system, tearing it down. He's never, he never likes the system, but he knows how to play the system. So, because you look at Tom Baker, he's the man outside of the system. He's the bohemian just coming in and wrecking it all from the outside. But Pertwee was always on the inside. He knew how to go to the dinner parties. He knew how to drink the fine wines and drink the cheese and go down to the larder. He knew how to schmooze with the best of them. But he was always annoyed by bureaucracy and diplomacy. He knew how to do it, but he never... You know, and he did it with relish, especially in Curse of Peladon. But he always wanted to break it down, and that's you know stuff like Mind of Evil, where he gets so frustrated with you know people not listening to his opinion about scientific dangers of doing the Keller machine. You know, and you can actually have a measurement for evil. I love that. That's one of my favorite things. It's only seventy five percent full of evil. Oh, that's right. We've got heaps of rooms to to fill it up with. It's like Ghostbusters. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the, the Pertwee Doctor always often railed against the parochialism of the people around him, didn't he? Yes, he started like he was really charming. He became quite prickish. Sorry, uh, gentle listeners. But then he, like he says, he gets settled into it, and so when he's about to regenerate, he doesn't go back to Gallifrey. He comes back to, to home, which is the Una family, which is a gorgeous moment. And if I think about it now, I'm going to tear up again. Um, so, yeah, it's a, he, he, he evolves as a character as well. He does. within. That's what I was talking about earlier. He has a limited range as an actor, dear old the, you know, John Pertwee, the mighty Pert. But within an inch of his life, he works within that small frame. And his character evolves from charming, charismatic to quite... You know, quite arrogant, arrogant mm. as well, and that's always there, but it balances out. It, people could say it's you know bipolar, because it depends on which story you're watching, but there is a, there is an arc to it, which I see. Yeah, people may want to argue with that, but yeah, I see a definite arc of Pertwee's character as well. Now, with the inclusion of uh, Barry Letts as producer, Barry Letts was very uh, passionate about political and social issues, and he brought that into his tenure in Doctor Who, and more so than any other producer had in the past. I mean, you look at the 60s era, they look at uh, those type of issues in a very subtle sense, but Barry Letts really wanted to explore it in a in a hands-on, full-on uh, type of way. So dealing with environmental issues and um, social, political issues as well. Um, so what do you guys think of that type of political aspect of 70s Doctor Who in the Pertwee era? It certainly has a resonance uh, even today. I mean, the environmentalism that we discussed or mentioned in terms of the Green Death, you know, pollution, uh, the impact on, on, on communities of pollution and that sort of thing uh, has a resonance today that uh, hasn't lost anything. Um, in terms of me as an adult watching it, uh, I, I take a great deal out of it. I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy that the, the Barry Letts went down that path. As a, as, a, as a child, I was probably more interested in the fact that there was a, a bloke lying over there with green goo on his face that glowed <laughs> in the dark. But um, I think it's, it's the hallmark of a really confident production that they're able to engage with the issues of the day. I mean, you know, in, in terms of the Peladon stories, uh, there's definite resonance there with regards to Britain's uh, entry into the uh, into the European community at that time, and uh, and and how that was handled. And and the, one of the great things about science fiction, one of its hallmarks, is that you can you you, you can use you know uh, current issues and dis- and 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 discuss them or or, or, or you know talk about them in in a science fiction setting without necessarily riling people up. Um, you know, shows like Doomwatch caused a bit of consternation because it, it sort of focused attention on, on, on government's misdeeds. 
Whereas in Doctor Who, I, I doubt very much whether there was many questions in Parliament about uh, how Doctor Who is sort of undermining our attempts to get into the EC or, or questioning our attempts to get into the EC. So uh, in terms of, uh, you know, Barry, let's bring that sort of, uh, that sort of approach to the show. I think, I think the audiences, it, it helped build the popularity of the show. Terence Dix downplays it quite a lot. He always goes, oh, Barry came up with that idea. Uncle Terry always goes... Yeah, Bowie said to me. Bowie said to me, I just wanted to have, you know, the, the good-looking girl who falls over and the doctor comes and saves him. But Bowie wanted to do this whole political thing and the environmental thing. But uh, I think, you know, Uncle Terry's playing it down a bit because, you know, his mentor, Malcolm Hulk, is one, one of the most political writers ever to be involved in Doctor Who. He was in, the, you know, the Communist Party. And most of his stories, well, pretty much all of his stories during during the Pertwee era, um, that's that was his golden era. Well, that was his only era on there. All of them had those wonderful explorations of government and don't trust the government and what's going to hand the Machiavellian nature of government officials and stuff. You know, the best part of you know the invasion of the dinosaurs isn't the dinosaurs. It's that wonderful political conspiracy that Mac came up with. Mm. And you go back and look at it now, people go, oh, it's the horrible one with the dinosaurs. And you watch, you go, oh no, this is a really good story. This is a beautifully paced six-part story dealing with corruption and and and, um, and, and environmental issues as well. So it's, it's a great era that Terence and Barry were very passionate about. And they were confident as well. They came in and just hit the ground running. They gave themselves a bit of time with season two. But then by season three and four, they're going, you know what? Bang, let's just hit this out. Let's deal with important stuff. Well, I, have to, I often personally think that Barry Litz is one of, one of the most important figures in Doctor Who. Uh, I mean, he, he, he made it, you know, the popular show that it was in the early 70s. He had a hand in Tom Baker's, uh, in Tom Baker's casting. And then he came back. And they brought him back. He came back and sort of shepherded J and T uh, into the role, and it was a pity that he didn't shepherd him out of the role personally. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there's there's something, there's a you could you could argue that Barry Liss is, is arguably the, one of the most important figures in the show's history. Very much so, and and involved with the show for quite some time as well. You know, directing uh, uh, the the enemy of the world, uh, and really bringing because he was an actor as well. He had that sensibility to to the actors as well because it's a very science a very effects driven show to so have someone in charge of the show aware that the actors need their time and space as well and ability to develop their characters is a strong strong part of it and he caused people look at the Hinchcliffe era of, of the controversy of sort of like you know Mary Whitehouse and stuff like that but the type of stuff that Let's was exploring, you know, Terror of the Autons has got some of the most complained about moments ever. You know, the, mm. the doll coming to life and the police officer having the, their mask taken off and being an evil creature. You know, they really, you know, the, the sofa killing all the, they're three key moments just from one story. And that was his first story as fully fledged producer. And the outrage that he caused is, 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 is fascinating to think of now but he's not really explaining everyone thinks oh Philip Hinchcliffe is the best but also let's not forget that Barry Letts co-authored yes. The Demons The Time Monster he also had he obviously had a hand in, in The Green Death as well and he and also he yeah, had and, some involvement and he did, in uh, Plan the Spiders as well yeah Plan the Spiders as well so the man had uh, wore many hats well he had to he was going bald so, yeah, it probably did actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe that's the reason why he went bald. Yeah. Well, it's surprising that he lasted four years when a lot of producers lasted, you know, six months, two, one year, two year, three years. But uh, I mean, yeah, the impression I get listening to him and, and watching him on the DVD specials is a, is a quite considered man 
who you know had a lot of deep thoughts about deep issues and and, and tried to convey them on on the show through the prism of Doctor Who. And nobody has a bad word to say against him at all. Well, and that's the thing as well. That uh, he's great in the commentaries because he's got either Katie Manning on one side and Terence on the other, and they're like bombastic, loud voices. Mm. And Barry's and Barry was always the one who just calms them down and moves the topic along. He, I think, he even moderated a couple of the commentaries just because he goes, "Okay, everyone, just let's stay on track, shall we? Let's not have Katie going off doing her weird voices." And Terry, we don't need to hear another story about you went on a drinking competition with Malcolm Holt or John Pertwee's buffon hair. Yeah, that's just talking. Well, he was a dandy, and he had to wear the corset for his back. And, and during his five years, the hair got bigger and bigger. <laughs> um, yeah, Barry Letts was very highly regarded within the Who community and very uh, and knew exactly what he wanted especially in his commentaries he talks about oh if only he had more time for that that didn't work as well but he also focuses on what they did well and so he was able to look at his show from quite an objective point of view what worked what didn't work and he also pioneered CSI yes he did as well the yellow fringing so uh, <laughs> I mean, he was the he was the man I think he was actually responsible for implementing most of it in, in the BBC and, and you see there's a, there's a feature on the Carnival of Monsters DVD where he's giving a presentation uh, Troy McClure style <laughs> yeah but uh, a pioneer in many ways An important aspect of uh, the John Pertwee era is, of course, the inclusion of the Master, which was a Barry Letts and Terence Dick's idea of bringing in someone who's like the Moriarty to uh, the Doctor's homes, which is amazing because Moriarty only appeared in one story and mentioned in another, and so he wasn't that big a part. But he's become this iconic, you know, arch nemesis. Of, he's huge now. He's huge now, mm. thanks to uh, Mr. Moffat's. Mr. Moffat's, but the inclusion of a character who is fundamentally a quite dated interpretation of a villain you know Delgado was dark skinned so they're playing up that whole you know you know evil Spaniard evil of Spaniard yeah. type of thing he was cast specifically for that but he was an amazing actor who played many roles of all types but he was filling in that role but he was used in pretty much every story in season 8 and then he was eased off to appear once or twice in uh, later seasons before he was you know unfortunately killed in a car crash in a car crash in Turkey I mean, I think we all agree that uh, he was well overused in Series 8. Um, yes, I agree. Yeah. What do you think, Rob? If your main villain is appearing in it, it's like having Daleks in six, six consecutive <laughs> stories, which I'm sure uh, in the current era they'd love to do, but uh, so would the nation estate. Yeah, I, I agree that it, clearly he's, he's overused, but even when he's overused, Delgado always brings... I mean, there's never a sense of tiredness in Delgado's portrayal, mm. as, far as, I, as far as I can see. He's always giving it his all, and he's always playing it seriously. And even though there might be, you know, the sort of... You, you begin to question his motives. Why Why am I humiliating myself time and time again to why do am I, this? Why am I working with the Ogrons? Well, exactly. But, uh, no complications. <laughs> yeah. He's, easily... <laughs> easily overused, but always, always eminently watchable, I've I, I found. Yeah, and I yeah. particularly like how he's such a good actor. He brought so much more to it. He's a, he's a very old-fashioned, quite racist interpretation of a character. His first two stories, Terror of the Autons and Mind of Evil, are just incredible, especially when he plays that gangster-style um, 
uh, hoodlum, villain, isn't he? hoodlum yeah. in, yeah. in, in uh, Mind of Evil but when he comes back that's when he really shines like in Sea Devils he's incredible because mm. you see the moment in the prison when they're talking it's just a wonderful and Pertwee stepped up whenever he was around Delgado it's the most awkward conversation but it's played so wonderfully yeah and uh, Delgado for me is the definitive master you can take you know you can take Anthony Ailey is wonderful doing his own interpretation of Delgado and um, Jeffrey Beavers has made a career on audio now for his one story mm. I played the master one time just in voice and you've got John Sims over the top but Delgado was just able to give that menace and evil but have a twinkle in his eye just like Pertwee yeah, you know? there's wow. some funny moments in in um, Sea Devils and especially in Frontier in Space his, his uh, interplay with the Ogrons is great it's just some <laughs> hilarious moments in there it's just he plays it up so much and it would have been great to have him in for the final uh, Pertwee story. It would have been perfect to have that send-off for the two of them. But it uh, wasn't oh, meant to nice. be. Just have to ask, what would, what would Big Finish do if Jeffrey Beavers had died five years ago or ten years ago? They would have got Gordon Tipple from the telly movie. <laughs> <laughs> the guy in the, in the cage. <laughs> the guy in the cage. They wouldn't have got Eric Roberts. So we sort of touched on uh, the Pertwee era as a whole, but uh, what's everybody's highs and lows uh, uh, story-wise? Well, I think we should look at probably the lows. We've been very, very glowing on the Pertwee era, and we should be. But let's look at some lows. Now, Mark, give us your, one of your lows. Okay, Monster of Paladon, in my opinion, <laughs> is the worst Pertwee story ever. Yep. It is dull. also doesn't help that, obviously, Pertwee's just handed in his notice. Mm. And you can just see that the performance is... He's not phoning it in, but he is not there he's not engaged with it and it doesn't help that it's got more padding than a bloody queen size mattress it's just yeah i i've I've watched it on dvd and i was thoroughly bored by it i thought it was um terrible it makes the big mistake of all sequels of destroying everything that was beautiful and it was too long it was just far too long the badgers were annoying the the ice warriors who were amazing in the curse of peladon were now Mm. just going back to what they were in the 60s era, dull, yeah. boring, just generic cutout. But Liz Sladen, I must admit, has get, just lifts it. Oh, yeah. I mean, her performance is watchable. That scene when she's um, over what she thinks is the dead yeah. doctor's body is one. Well, she, you know, she was the first year and she was trying to impress and she seriously did. Yeah. Um, me personally, um, there's so many to choose from, but what I'm really disappointed in is uh, Colony in Space. Just because it's it's Mac Hulk doing political stuff, which is good, but it's a little bit bland. It's our first trip to another planet for what about a year, a season and a half, and where do we go? One of the most dull, grey quarries ever, and it's just and you know this is your first trip in the TARDIS, Joe. You get to see another world. What is it? It's stormy it's grey and I'm okay with stormy and dark and all that type of stuff but it was just a, a bland and a mess of grey and it picks up later on but it's just a dull 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 introduction for the first trip in the TARDIS to an alien planet for about a year and a half Ooh, and it goes to a quarry that one of the worst quarries ever. Bad quarry acting I mean it's so, it's, it's so bland it might as well have been filmed in black and white <laughs> It, yeah, it is pretty awful. The book's all right, the, the story itself. I'm actually going to defend it. 
Hello. Mark's um, arcing up. I think with the Pertwee six-parters, what you do is you don't watch them in one big continuous sitting because your brain's just going to melt. What you do is you watch an episode or two every couple of days. And when I did that, I really enjoyed it. Yes, I understand it's a bit pedestrian, but definitely lifts up when Delgado gets there. Mm. Better than Monster Peloton. That's my benchmark. Anything is better than Monster Peloton. Yeah, well, you've, you've hit the ground running with like the yeah. most ever. And anything <laughs> underneath that, you're going, oh, it's bad. It's but not too bad, you know. <laughs> refer it back to Monster. That's not that good. And like, it does have some of the best arch acting ever in Colony in Space. The guy who plays the head of the, the corporation oh, with, yes. the, with the blonde hair down, yeah. playing it like Caesar. Yeah. Is there, with, the, with the raised eyebrow, and you can actually, you know, can see the, yeah. you can see the disdain come out of his nose and that role was originally written for a woman that would have been great that would have been uh, yeah boots and all what uh, about you what about you Rob um, I I tend to find the poor parts of the Pertwee era in the in in the just when you when you're when you're stuck in the middle of a six-parter like say you know Frontier in Space and it's they captured they escape they they captured they escape Uh, and it just you just find the story dies basically for an episode and a half and and you there's there's nothing to keep you going except possibly the prospect that eventually it's going to end sort of excitingly so <laughs> I, I, I find i find frontier in space for, for long stretches to be deathly deathly dull and planet of, planet of the spiders you know a fantastic opening episode a fantastic closing episode that, that once they hit metabolus three uh, it's just death, basically. It's just extended scenes of just no, no, no. You cannot take him. Not my husband. Oh, oh my god. And again, as a child uh, with my phobia of, of spiders, I, I found you know Planet of the Spiders endlessly fascinating and horrifying, and in equal measures. Now you find it endlessly horrifying in many other ways. It's just bits of it are mediocre, and unfortunately, it's just for whatever reason they they loved having their six parters. There's too many six parters in. In, in the Pertwee era, it doesn't ruin it. It just it just hurts the stories that they, a lot of those six parters could easily have been told in four, uh, and even a story like the Demons, which which is five parts, is is not quite over long. So, I, I tend to find that there's no. I mean, I haven't seen say Monster in years and years, so I, I can't comment on its perceived lack of quality. But I, I would say that the, you know six parters uh, were were a mistake were a mistake and that affected you know some of the quality of a lot of the stories that were, were six-parted what about the mutants so the only thing i remember about the mutants was reading in the uh, program guide the story synopsis and it had the uh, the actor rick james now i thought rick james was the man who sang super freak, she's super i wish it was that rick james <laughs> in that story because he would have lifted it because the rick james that got in there is not the best no. stubsy stubsy yeah they should have kept stubsy alive yeah he was a good actor he was a great actor but um yeah the mutants um does come in for a bit of flack i, I must admit but uh, again i just used my one or two episodes every couple of days and whizzed right through it and uh, was pleasantly surprised at the end yeah I'm, I'm, i've got a soft spot for the mutants and it, i i don't have much of a soft spot for the, the time monster I can't, they're trying to capture the same essence of the demons, and it just falls terribly. It's like the demons meets Batman, the 60s TV show. It's sort of slightly camp-esque, isn't it? it it's, I don't think... It, once you get to Atlantis, it's not even slightly camp. It's very much... <laughs> they've, they've pitched their tents, and they've gone, Welcome to Campville. You're all welcome. And they've got, you know... What's her name who played the, the queen of... Oh, um... Ingrid Pitt. Ingrid Pitt. Who came back for... Karate. Ch- karate chopping a... The karate a That was a good scene, though. That's a good scene. Delgado flirting with the queen is mm. kind of really mm. hot. I kind of find Delgado kind of attractive in that moment. But at the end when he's praying for forgiveness to uh, Kronos... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a bit naff. Yeah. What about you, Rob? Any, Any others? No. I love the, <laughs> I, I love the Pertwee era. 
I, 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 I will say that Delgado gives his all in the Black Mass scenes in The Demons. Oh, oh yes. He, he, Eko Azal, he's right into it. Everyone else around him is a bit hesitant, but he, yeah, I suppose it's the, the beard that does it and the swarthy complexion. The scene in the pub when he's like, you're all, yeah, you're all yeah. just under my feet. That's an amazing <laughs> moment where he just bags them all out. It's just, he's so evil and so angry at them all for being so little to him. It's such a great scene. He rattles off all their deep, dark secrets. What about you and, you, you know, you're fiddling the books and, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's surprising because the Pertwee era can be surprisingly. I've just used the word surprisingly three times. Now, <laughs> can, can be surprisingly adult in tone. I mean, I remember recently last year I watched uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and when uh, the, the the Doctor and, and Joe are brought in to because they've been arrested, one of the guards sitting at the table is reading a girly magazine, uh, which which is just funny <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> the seventies is very liberal, of course. And that edition of that uh, uh, magazine is actually fetching a lot of money on eBay, Rob. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I do get paid this week. <laughs> but yes, I mean, you know, exposing people in a in a in a in a in a, you know an idealized community like uh, in the demons is a little bit, you know, there's something that the show probably hadn't done before. Exposing their foibles in a sort of a Twin Peaks sort of way. It's a first, and there's a lot of firsts in this era. Mm. So we've done lows, so highs. Okay, I'll take it off first because I'm the guest and I'll just take it. Okay, hands down, favourite, Inferno is my favourite. Don Horton, amazing writer, and he wrote Mind of Evil as well. Great stuff, but Inferno, genius. Everyone in the top of their game, really menacing, grim tone to the whole thing. The cliffhanger where an entire world is destroyed. You know, Eric Saywood can kill as many people as he wants in his era, but, you know, Barry Letts in the series, uh, episode six, Cliffhanger, destroyed an entire planet. And that's hands down grim moment ever. Mark? Well, it's going to be very boring if we all say Inferno. Well, you see, you did, the, you did the Monster of Peladon first. <laughs> okay, everything else after that. Is... Everything else after that. I've got a soft spot for the Sea Devils. I think that one epitomizes the Pertwee era for me. Um, it's got the, obviously got the Master in. It's a Mac Hulk script. I mean, he's recycling the Silurians a little bit. But in just, the EO scenes. They shouldn't the be EO called scenes. the EO scenes. Exactly. I, I just I think it's quite well, well directed. But to me, it just evokes the most memories of when I saw it. And it just made that a great impression on me as well. Because I think the Pertwee's, you got your highs, you got your lows. But there's a lot of good stuff in the middle. And, mm. and as Rob said before about Invasion of Dinosaurs, if you haven't watched it, I mean, there's only a couple of bad dinosaur effects. Triceratops is great. Um, the Tyrannosaurus Rex is not so great. One of the highlights in the Pertwee era for me as well. The Pertwee era is full of pleasant surprises, Rob. Because I tend to lean towards uh, conspiracy thrillers and stuff like that, I lean towards Ambassadors of Death. Nice. Mm. I know that the, there were many hands involved in the script and sometimes character motivations are a bit puzzling. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, again, that it's in my wheelhouse, that sort of thing. Some of the direction is fantastic, like when the, the ambassadors are in their suits and they're walking towards uh, the, the, the security gate and the sunlight is glinting off That's their helmets. That's a great shot. That, mm. is a, that is a wonderful shot. And I think, you know, sometimes the direction in Doctor Who is is underrated or ignored because a lot of the directors just sort of point the camera at a person and say, talk. But in this instance where you get the location shooting, uh, they the location shooting through the Pertwee era is, is really good. I mean, there's some, there's some great stuff in, um, in The Demons. But in Ambassadors... There's a lot of things that in that, that that gel, even though you'd think over seven episodes would be difficult for it to do. And, you know, Pertwee is, you know, really serious and uh, the threat is there. Uh, so I really enjoy Ambassadors. I also uh, enjoy uh, The Time Warrior simply because Holmes, the characters that Holmes creates, they're, they're all individuals. They're, they've all got something. I mean, a lot of, you know, the, the characters can be 
in, in, inside Doctor Who and classic Doctor Who can be bland. They can be background figures and they sort of have their line and they vanish. But I, I find that he crafted a, a group of, of individuals, you know, characters who were individuals who had their own, you know, their own uh, quirks and foibles and they had their own interests and their own motivations and it all worked together. And, you know, the Time Warrior itself might not be the, the, the greatest story, but it's got a really good collection of characters who I, who I enjoyed. And I just recently watched The Demons, and again, I like you know the occult horror thing. I I, I quite enjoy. Um, I was just watching an Amicus movie uh, a couple of days ago, and there's that, there's that feel, a similar feel in The Demons, where you know black masses, an isolated village, an ancient evil comes to the fore, um, and uh, really quite good. And the woman who played Miss Hawthorne, uh, I just it just it just struck me. Uh, a dead ringer for Margaret Thatcher. It was just, I was just sitting there going. My God, it's Margaret Thatcher. She's awesome. She is so good. And that's such a wonderful character and such a wonderful character of the actor who played it. Played the, she's just, oh, he's just, he's quite a heavy man. Oh, <laughs> and she's got the hot for Benton. It's great. She's yeah. so good. It's interesting so, nobody's picked it as her favourite story, though, because I think The Demons is overrated. Some of it is rushed, I admit. I mean, I enjoy it for the atmosphere more than anything else. And I think they, they throw atmosphere at it in spades. And, you know, some of the motivations and some of the things that characters do are ridiculous um, but you can understand why, why the people you know, in the crew had a fun time because they were on location for most of it for me I found it quite difficult to actually watch the VHS copy because it was from other versions of it and so the, the actual image quality of the VHS was actually difficult to endure even in you know, spades so the story was fine and the acting was good but I couldn't just because it was so hard to watch because the quality of the picture was so bad. But when it came out on DVD and they've mixed it all up and they've fixed it all up to actually watch the demons with that crystal clear image made it a lot more enjoyable. I didn't have to squint or strain. I didn't. My head didn't hurt from, from that and that made the story much more enjoyable because I'd only been watching it on this really bad VHS uh, transfer. That's the same with Colony in Space. I remember having really crap copies of Purple yeah. Stories on, you know, in, in VHS and just watching them again on DVD, uh, clear, uh, just heightens that uh, enjoyment value. Hmm. But, yeah, you know, just let's summarise. We've had a very heated discussion about the Pertwee era. So, gentlemen, uh, final thoughts about the era of the Mighty Pert. Something that, the era is something that fandom should really go and, and look at because, as you said earlier, I think John Pertwee and the Pertwee era is a bit of an undiscovered or a neglected gem, that there's a, a lot in the series to take away uh, from it. Um, Pertwee's performance, um, I know that he's criticised uh, in certain aspects for season his final season, but I, I find his performance all the way through to be engaging, to be, to be interesting. And as you said, he's a fairly limited straight actor, but I think he extracted as much as he could out of, the, out of his ability uh, and the stories themselves are always there's always something they're always eminently watchable even when they're you know in air quotes bad I mean the time monster is not flash but there's always something interesting going on and for something that um, personally a lot of the stories I haven't seen in, in over 30 years so this week being able to go back and just watch them um, just demonstrates that at uh, the, 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 the Pertwee era is, is, it was a worthwhile era and, and, uh, and, and something that we should all go back and, and have a view and have a look at because I think the uh, the foundation of the show's popularity can be found between 1970 and 1974. Mark? Vastly underrated, I think, the Pertwee Euros. As I said, I didn't have very high opinions of it at all, especially around some of his uh, portrayal quirks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say the word prick. I just had. Um, but again, also, I think it does improve. Obviously, you know, you get older and you enjoy it on a different level. And as I said, I've enjoyed all of them. 
apart from Monster Repelled, on uh, in in various ways. Even some of the lesser stories I've enjoyed. Yeah, I agree. That's it's as I was saying. It's it's an era where it actually explores arcs in a very rudimentary way. It's not constructed as we would look at an arc season on television nowadays. But the rudimentary uh, arc stories are there not only overall over five seasons, but also from its lead characters, from its companions as well. So it is one of the only eras of Doctor Who you can watch from start to finish, from Spearhead all the way up to um, Planet of the Spiders. And you can see that story arc. You can watch any... Uh, Baker or or Troughton or Hartnell story in any order but with the Pertwee era that's one you can actually watch from its first story and watch it all the way through to the end and it makes sense and it has a beautiful flow and there are some ups and downs along the way but isn't that just like life absolutely and isn't science fiction meant to be a reflection of those areas of our life that we wouldn't normally think about I think there's something in that for all of us. That's too deep for this podcast. <laughs> Where did we get this bloke from? <laughs> now, let's talk about Katie Manning nude up against a Dalek. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you for bringing the picture with you today, today right? We're having a look at that right now. I mean, I've, I've, as I said, I haven't watched a lot of Pertwee in, in 20 or 30 years, and I'm really enjoying the episodes that I'm watching. And, and Claws of Axos, for some reason, I, I had the impression that it was, wasn't a particularly good story. But the first two episodes are great. That was the Like I said, that's the first one I saw where he is such an asshole in it. It's really creative, like, you know, the organic ship and you know there's like really psychedelic funky stuff but it's 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 a bit of a mess for me um it gets a lot a little bit more interesting when the master and the doctor have to work later on which you'll see but yeah overall it's one i i can't really watch i i I under i appreciate how it pushes the boundaries of sci-fi i wonder how much of uh pertwee's influence is going to be felt in the capaldi era because i'm seeing a lot of i'm seeing a lot of pertwee in capaldi i'm loving that yeah i'm loving the fact that you know the first photo shoot was him and jenna louise coleman doing the you know the pose the pose just Mm. like you know pertwee and manning and now he's doing his outfit pose like john pertwee i'm loving that you know they gave Troughton a bit of new life with matt smith and now Capoli's going, let's give some love back to the Third Doctor era. The last podcast, we uh, uh, invited our uh, listeners to give us their thoughts and opinions of the Pertwee era. So we've got a couple here. So I might get Rob to give us a hand uh, going through them. Sure. Okay. Uh, Bernard JKD said, As a three-year-old, I saw him regenerate in 1974. Next, I saw pics of him in DWW in 1979, and then in The Five Faces of Doctor Who in 1981. Three Doctors and Carnival of Monsters. Great choices. And then The Five Doctors in 83. Archetypal and watchable. Hard to argue with those views, I suppose, isn't it? And uh, there's another message here from a, 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 a J.R. Southall from uh, the Blue Box podcast. J.R. says, uh, Whenever I think of the Pertwee years as a discrete era, I always consider it one of Doctor Who's dullest periods. However, whenever I put one of the stories on, I always find myself enjoying it immensely. Even the worst of the Pertwees are such great fun they can liven up a dull Sunday afternoon. Oh, I think what JR says, I don't agree with him being, you know, the Pertwee year or being the dullest period, but there's always, as I said before, there's always something you can find in, in any of the Pertwee stories that are entertaining. Yeah. They're nothing less than entertaining, which is all you really can ask for in Doctor Who at the, at the, at the bottom. From Michael in Newcastle, Australia. If you want to understand the appeal of Pertwee, look no further than the Green Death. He's one step ahead of everyone, 
brave in confronting boss, charming at the dinner party, entertainingly selfish and arrogant when he pulls Cliff Jones away from his flirtations with Joe, and tragically compassionate as he farewells her three episodes later. It is quite touching at last scene, The Green Death. I think it's one of the best mm. companion farewells ever. It's such a beautiful moment. And just driving off with Bessie at the end. Yeah. That uh, lens he must have borrowed from J.J. Abrahams. <laughs> a lot of lens flair. But uh, yeah, it's a great scene. And I think they replicated that in Sherlock. What? They did in the power, in the, yeah. the sign of three. Mm. They so replicated that. I went, Sherlock is not the third doctor. Really Cumberbatch's in the frame if... if uh... When Capaldi leaves and Moffat is still there. Just a final missive. Paul in Wilmington, North Carolina says, Pertwee is my favourite Doctor, so I look forward to hearing your discussion about him. He truly brings to the screen the Doctor's alien mix of intelligence, arrogance and amazing compassion. I do hope, though, that you bust the myth about Invasion of the Dinosaurs being a clunker. It's an amazing script about sympathetic villains that explores the nature of morality and includes possibly the biggest plot twist in the history of the show when Mike Yates turns traitor. Yes, some of the dinosaurs are terrible, but the ones just... Required to stand there aren't that bad. But it's the story that counts. Well, that's what you can say about Doctor Who, isn't it? It's the story. Yeah, here, here. All about the arc. Mike Yates' arc is very tragic, but he redeems himself in Planet of the Spiders. All right, so that closes out a discussion of the Pertwee era. Um, we've been really happy to have uh, Rob Lloyd along uh, to assist us in our discussion. It's been a lot of fun. Rob, just before you go, if you just want to mention to the listeners uh, again, uh, just some contact details with regards to yourself and and and, and the, the tour for the science of Doctor Who. Thanks uh, so much for having me on, guys. I've had an absolute ball. Um, everything about me you can find out on my uh, website, robloyd.com.au. That's uh, Lloyd, double L-O-Y-D, dot com dot A-U. Uh, my Twitter is at Future Robbie, double B-Y. Uh, and the Science of Doctor Who tickets go on sale the 11th of February. So by the time this goes out, tickets are on sale on the RIOS website under uh, Doctor Who. And we'll be touring uh, Australia all of uh, April, May, and June. So check out everything on my website, robloyd.com.au. We'd love to come back, Rob? I would love to come back. I've had an absolute ball. I just hope I haven't taken over too much. No, absolutely fine. We'll, uh, we'll get our people to talk to your people and uh, sort something out. Thank you very much for coming along. It's been really, really great having you on board. Um, Rob, anything you want to close out with? Want to pimp our wares? Uh, Gmail? Um, send us a Twitter missive send us a Facebook missive uh, so our, our, uh, our Gmail account is 42 to doomsday at gmail.com you can catch us on that uh, wonderful new website Facebook facebook.com slash 42 to doomsday or you can tweet us uh, in your best chirpy voice uh, at 42 to doomsday so get in touch with us we, we love your, uh, your your emails and your feedback reach out and touch us please <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for the likes <laughs> We like getting likes. Yes, thank you very much for the likes. To wrap all this up, I've been Mark. I've been Rob. And I've been Rob. And as the third Doctor shouted out to a surrounding horde of global chemical thugs... Hi! Catch you next time. Hi! Bye. More enthusiastic. Come on. Bye-bye! Know me. Am I the Doctor?